Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Vox Conversations. I'm Sean Ramos for I host another Vox podcast called Today Explained, but I'm here to introduce today's show. We got Vox's Sean Illing, one of the illest Seans at Vox, talking with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, about the costs of racism in America for everyone. They talk about what we lose when we buy into the zero-sum paradigm that progress for some people has to come at the expense of others and why the left needs to reframe the country's race problem and persuade the other side with a more compelling story. Here's Sean Elling. When we tell the story of racism in this country, black Americans are typically cast as the victims. There are good reasons for this. Black Americans are the primary victims, but framing the problem this way obscures an important truth. White Americans pay a tremendous price for the country's racial hierarchy. Heather McGee is a former president of the think tank Demos and the author of a terrific new book called The Sum of Us. It's a book built on a central metaphor, the drained swimming pool. For most of the 20th century, American towns offered grand community swimming pools as symbols of leisure and civic pride. They were testaments to public investment. But then desegregation happened and the pools had to be integrated. Rather than open them up to everyone, town after town after town shut them down. And not only did they close the pools, they nuked their parks departments and abandoned public investment altogether. This, McGee argues, is the story of American politics in microcosm. The entire country is now one giant drained pool. Too many Americans have too easily accepted the lie, animating so much of our history, namely that politics is a zero-sum contest in which one group's gain must be another group's loss. I wanted to talk through the consequences of all this with McGee. If she's right that we can't have nice things because of this lie at the center of our shared story, then how do we transcend that lie? What story must replace it? And how can the left do a better job at persuading the victims of this lie to let it go? Well, first, Heather McGee, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Heather, can you start by just telling me a little bit about your journey of writing this book and how you came to it? One of the first stops in my book journey to write The Sum of Us was Montgomery, Alabama, which is one of many places where there is a beautiful central park in the city. And I walked the grounds, this big, wide, flat expanse that used to have one of the nearly 2,000 publicly funded grand resort-style swimming pools in America. And this was something that was a big feature of American life under the New Deal in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. It was just one of the many examples of a commitment to the public good by our government that was really supported by white public opinion at the time. But like so much of the New Deal, so much of that public commitment to public goods, there was an asterisk. And it public pools in many parts of the country were segregated or for whites only. Certainly this one in Montgomery, Alabama was. And so in the 1950s and 60s, when Black families began to win court cases saying, hey, those are our tax dollars too. Our families should be able to swim too. Instead of integrating the pools, 
many cities across the country drained their public pools rather than integrate them. That's what happened in Montgomery, Alabama. In fact, they drained the pool, filled it with dirt, closed the Oak Park, the park where I was walking, sold off the animals in the zoo, shut down the entire Parks and Recreation Department of the city, and kept it closed for a decade. They were almost to 1970 before the good people of Montgomery, Alabama, even got to enjoy a public park again, all because of racism. And to me, that's such an example of the zero-sum thinking, creating costs for everyone, turning what was a public good into a private luxury, expressing the limits of white support for public goods once those public goods were extended and available to people that they did not perceive to be good, that they had been taught for generations to disdain and distrust. And in many ways, that's what's happened to our entire economy as the majority of white voters went from supporting a job guarantee and a minimum income in the country in the late 50s and early 60s to that support cratering in half once the civil rights movement made clear that those kinds of economic guarantees would go to Black people as well. It really does feel like the most self-destructive political tantrum in the history of tantrums and (laughs) politics. It is. It's crazy. But throughout the book, I really try to put myself in the shoes of people who might, because of the stories they've been told, because of what they believe, fit that into their moral understanding. And the more you do that, the more you recognize that, in many ways, we're still there. Those beliefs about the inherent goodness or deservingness of people at the bottom of the economic ladder are still pretty stubborn. And they're reflected in the majority of white people's opinions about what, for example, a minimum wage worker should be paid or who should pay taxes or, you know, what kinds of floors we should have under the human misery of our fellow American. Yeah, it's a good point. Given what those people believed given the stories they were told, the actions they took, however you know, insane they look from our, our 21st century perch, were perfectly rational. And mm-hmm. that really is maybe the most regrettable part of it. Mm-hmm. Your book opens with a depressing but very familiar question, which is, why can't we have nice things? What nice things can't we have? Or at least Not yet. Yeah, I I don't actually mean like self-driving cars, which I don't actually think we need. (laughs) Or, you know, laundry that does itself, which would be really wonderful, I'm learning um, as a new mom. But I mean things like really, truly universal affordable health care or world-class or even just reliable modern infrastructure. I mean a public health system to tackle pandemics with efficiency and skill. Um, I mean, a well-funded school in every neighborhood. I mean, a, you know, a representative functioning democracy that allows, you know, majoritarian views on big public questions to prevail and not get stymied in arcane Senate rules. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that a wealthy, modern government should be able to provide for its people. And they are the types of things that this country has really failed to deliver on for all of my lifetime and certainly for the past few generations. Well, let's talk about why we can't have all those nice things. As you point out in the book, people like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison recognized a long time ago that racism was a poison first consumed by its concoctors, to to borrow your words. And yet, even as the cost of that have become clear, the appeal of the racial bargain persists. And mm-hmm. you come from, you know, the think tank world, the policy world, but you tell a story in the book about the limits of research. And the moment you realized that all the data and all the facts in the world wasn't going to get us over the racial hump. And I think it speaks to the inexhaustibility of this particular hoodwink. Mm. And I was hoping you could just kind of briefly explain what happened there. So the first issue I ever really worked on as a young policy wonk was financial regulation, lending, and debt. 
And the body of research that we had amassed at Demos made it very clear that there was a big problem with deregulated consumer debt just engulfing working and middle-class families. And that foreclosures and bankruptcies were on the rise and families were borrowing to make ends meet. And we felt like we had the data to show that what was going on on household balance sheets was a sign of deeper systemic issues about insecurity and not, you know, individual personally irresponsible decisions um, that needed to be punished. (laughs) And yet, when we were lobbying against the bankruptcy reform bill of 2005, which would make it harder for people who had lost everything to get a fresh second chance, I was walking down the halls of the Senate office building and... I was 25. I had these shoes that were ill-fitting on top of pantyhose that were uncomfortable, and I kept losing my shoe. And I, I bent down to to fix my shoe, and I heard through an open door this male voice going on about, you know, deadbeats who were having children with multiple mothers and then turning to the government to support them instead of, you know, being personally responsible. And, of course, race was never mentioned. It was not like these Black men who were doing this. There was nothing explicit about it or conclusive. And yet, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I just felt like, right, the image that I have of the person who's going to bankruptcy as a last resort is very different from the stereotype and the image in this person's mind. And there's a racialized theater always And I can't believe that I lost sight of that because I was sort of in this kind of white think tank world. But I'm a Black woman in America, and I came of age during the welfare reform fights where when we talk about government and the economy and and people who don't have a lot of money, it's always so racialized. Poverty is so racialized by elites and by the media, and particularly issues of, of government assistance are so racialized. And as the number of Americans who are impoverished and who need government assistance and who can't make ends meet under the economic rules that elites have written grows, their own response was being warped by an outdated, racialized, and socially distanced, not in the new way of us talking about it, but in the sort of more sociological way of us thinking about it, um, in this way in which you could really blame people who were struggling for some inherent flaw in their character, as opposed to blaming the economic rules. And that, in this country, has everything to do with race. And why is that our story? Why is that the dominant story? Why is it zero-sum? Why is it black versus white? It's obviously not an accident, and it obviously won't go away. Yeah. Well, the zero-sum story, the idea that There's this massive dividing line between Black people and white people, that they're on opposite teams, and that progress for people of color has to come at white people's expense, is a story that's still with us because it's very profitable. Because the upshot of selling this story is that white voters cheer the destruction of supports that could benefit them if it will keep the people on the opposite team from having something that they don't think they deserve. So what that has meant in practical politics has been the kind of zero-sum rhetoric that we hear from the right wing, the makers and takers, the taxpayers and freeloaders, the free stuff, the handouts, us versus them, winners and losers, the derision of people who might need health care as somehow kind of like a different type of person than the rest of us, has fractured the kind of social solidarity that is necessary to support common sense, universal benefits that are essential to economic growth, to economic opportunity, to a functioning society. We're in this situation in which Black Americans have been targeted. And most white Americans have been duped. And I hesitate to use that word duped 
for reasons I'll explain in a bit, but I'll, I'll stick to it for now. But I, I do want to ask, if that's the case, it appears most people are losing. So who the hell is winning? <laughs> Republicans who are still holding on to a great deal of legislative power and judicial power, even though their ideas are totally bankrupt and not even popular in many instances with their own voters. They are absolutely winning from the zero-sum story. Economically, the mostly white, mostly male elite that have an ideology of limited government, limited regulation, and limited taxation are winning. But ultimately, I think that the narrow definition of self-interest held by many elites and the right wing is false. Our economic growth is slower because of inequality. Our economy is smaller because of inequality. Big public problem solving that requires government is not happening because of the zero-sum story whether it's climate change or investments or infrastructure or broadly available affordable education and healthcare. And ultimately, certainly, working and middle-class white people are not winning, even though they continue to vote along the lines of the zero-sum story. I want to emphasize the word story there, because we're going to keep coming back to that, because this is all about a story. And it's such an important revelation because for years, you know, I've watched Democrats try to win arguments and I've watched Republicans just try to win. It's as though conservatives understand that good arguments don't necessarily win, that truth doesn't necessarily prevail in the marketplace of ideas. Right? Emotions do, powerful narratives do, simplistic accounts of us and them do. I mean, am I being too cynical here or is that true? The deep story of the racial zero-sum hierarchy is fed by politics, it's nurtured by politics, it's sold by politicians, but it goes deeper than politics. You know, any kinds of argument that doesn't engage with these core ways that human beings in our highly racialized and stratified society understand themselves is going to lose out to a story that presses right on that nerve. And that tells you not just what government is and what the economy is, but who you are and what you're worth. And that's what the zero-sum story does. That's what this desire for a sense of status that is less contingent than your paycheck, right? Your paycheck can go up and down, right? right, um, right. You know, as I discovered when I was in Mississippi talking to white and black workers about the way that the vote to join a union had become so racialized and had fallen on largely racial lines, I had to check my own assumption that white people would be willing to give up the slight privileges of whiteness on the job in exchange for $20,000 more a year or better health care or a real pension. Because those things can come and go, but knowing that you are treated better by those in power, knowing that you look like those in power, knowing that you are not the butt of society's jokes and abuse, has a material, a material feeling benefit. Perhaps, I said, the, the being matters more than the having. Is it possible that people or a lot of people just care more about perceived status and symbolic power than they do about what we typically think of as, you know, material self-interest? Yeah, I think manifestly they do. I don't think Democrats do their pursuit of white voters a favor by not putting on the table a clear distinction on those material gains, right? Democrats have not consistently said, if you vote for us, you will be more economically secure. And it's because we're willing to fight tooth and nail for $15 an hour and to cancel your student debt and to bring back good jobs in a way that we can really be held accountable for. 
So if you are not so sure about the power of government to actually change the economy one way or the other, perhaps it is better to settle for the wages of whiteness, as W.E. Du Bois called them, the psychological wage than the material wage. I guess it seems to me that like the side that's less anchored to facts has more freedom mm-hmm. to tell the most powerful story, you know, the story that tugs the hardest on our tribal impulses. And I guess that's why I always feel like the Democrats are playing a shitty hand here. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? But but then again, yes, totally. maybe that's bullshit. Maybe the Democrats just need to be better than they are, and they haven't been. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, both things are true, right? Democrats are playing a shitty hand not only because they care about facts and they feel like they have to tell a story that is somewhat close to the truth. But there's also a much harder job of putting together a multiracial, multi-class coalition that is not just held together by these fibers of white self-interest, perceived white racial interest. You have to have everybody else, right? And still, the leadership of the Democratic Party is white when the base is not, right? The white Democrats are the minority of white people, and yet they're the majority of the Democratic Party in terms of our leadership. And so there is a way in which the right wing is all has been for a long time sort of rowing in the same direction, that the people at the top of the party and the people at the base of the party, while, you know, slightly different economically, still have this story that they've all been sold around white masculinity in America that creates these bonds. Whereas in many ways, the Democratic Party has to be a microcosm of the challenge of a multiracial democracy in America, which is pull together a common story about our big challenges and about who we are as Americans and what we owe to one another. And in many ways, that's why I was really endeavoring to write a book about the history of this country that puts race and racism as a weapon to divide our people and to redistribute wealth upwards at the center where it belongs, because it offers then a story that everyone who is struggling to survive and thrive in America can see themselves in and have a common foe. As a minimum wage fast food worker in Kansas City, a white woman named Bridget told me about the fight for 15. She said, kind of the whole point of this movement is for white workers to understand that racism affects white workers as well because it keeps us divided from our black and our brown brothers and sisters. So we need to understand that as white workers, we too need to stand up and fight against racism. I think there's huge work to be done at recasting racism not exclusively as a story where white people win and people of color lose, which is terrible marketing (laughs) by selling to white Americans all the material benefits of racism. It's selling racism, right? And I think that that means that the, the only people who will willingly give that up, those advantages that we talk about, um, are people who have a moral proclivity towards selflessness or people who are materially well-off enough that they don't feel like they need those advantages. And yet there's been no stronger cudgel against working-class solidarity that would raise the wages and the voices of white working-class people alongside black and brown working-class people than racism as wielded as a weapon in our politics and our policymaking. Here's the thing, right? I mean, most white people don't hate black people more than they love themselves. But you know, we're all products of deep cultural forces that shape us in ways we don't understand. And mm-hmm. our identities are getting activated in ways we often don't recognize. How do you make someone aware of the illusoriness of their own identity, of their own story, really, without also offending who they think they are? Mm-hmm. I think politics has a role. I think it's really important that political messaging, like the race-class narrative project that I co-developed and we housed at Demos, which was really aimed at just better messages for organizers and activists and candidates to beat the zero-sum scapegoating story. 
That's really important. But when I met along the journey that I took to write The Sum of Us, white people who had actually rejected the zero sum after growing up being steeped in it, it wasn't because they heard the magic words in a campaign ad. It was because they had rolled up their sleeves in organizing. They had actually experienced what it's like to trust someone who also needed the same change in their own lives, like Bridget, who, you know, had her watershed moment at her first organizing meeting of fast food workers when a Latina woman stood up and described her own life and feeling trapped and having three kids in an apartment with bad plumbing. And she said, I saw myself in her for the first time and that that was huge for Bridget. And then moving into actually, you know, writing up a list of demands about changes in their workplace. Literally, like things like the grease trap needed to be fixed. And realizing that if they all wrote up that list of demands and brought them to the boss together, they could get done. Right? It's, it's actually about collective action. I think that's where The Some of Us is a little distinct from other anti-racist books that are at least have been received as as focusing on on consciousness raising. And then there are some that are very focused on racist policy. And mine, I hope, offers a bunch of different examples of what has to happen in between, right? You change your consciousness. How do you get to policy? It's through rolling up your sleeves and working together for some shared vision of the future that cannot exist if we still hold on to this zero-sum view. Okay, let's take a quick break, but when we're back, I think the people we are in our everyday lives are kinder and more inclusive than our abstract political identities would suggest. So the challenge is persuading people to see things as they really are, to see the lie of racism for what it is. So how do we do that? I ask Heather McGee after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. I've long believed and I still believe that there's a, for the most part, a huge disconnect between our abstract political identities and the truth of our lived experiences, which is often, you know, a lot kinder and more inclusive than those abstract identities. And that tells me that there are possibilities here if we can cut through the bullshit. But a big challenge is about persuasion, right? We have to persuade people to see things as they are. And that leads to a question of strategy, which is what I want to ask you about next. And, and look, what I'm about to say is probably going to piss some people off. But, you know, this is a conversation, not a sermon. So I'll just say it and, and, and let you respond. If I was among the richest and most powerful people in this country, and you asked me to engineer a political situation that would ensure my interest were never threatened, what we have now is pretty close to what it would be. And that is conventional white racism on the one side, and what we see in some corners of the left today, which is a blanket condemnation of, of you know, whiteness or white privilege, or you know, some obsessions with various symbolic battles. And my concerns here really have nothing to do with, with how true or false any of that is or right or wrong. Any of that is my concern is that if that's the fight, if those are the terms, nothing is going to change. And mm -hmm. this whole plutocratic system will just keep spinning and spinning. 
So I guess what I'm asking is, am I worried about the wrong things there, or are you also worried about that? So I think there's a disconnect because, for the most part, the the flaws you identify in the way that the broad progressive actors who have a microphone, <laughs> which fights they're engaging in and which issues get elevated to Twitter fights, which issues get elevated to news coverage, etc., is in and of itself very unrepresentative of what concerns, you know, a Black family in St. Louis. Right. And so you actually have a bit of a distortion of the cause of racial justice because of the white predominance in the chattering class on the left. It's, it's almost like white supremacy within the activist movement is hurting the activist movement's cause. I certainly think of this in terms of the way that my eyes were really opened to the role of race and racism in the environmental movement, where, you know, if you're just a casual observer, you might say, yeah, the environmentalist, you're like typical environmentalist is like a white guy with a fleece and a backpack, right? That's Sierra Club. That's the the REI version of the environmentalist, right? It's it's the the upper class family that recycles a lot and composts. And, you know, like that's sort of who's the most active on environmental issues is kind of the stereotype. And it's also because those groups are the best funded and also, you know, influential in in the policymaking. And when I dug into it, it turns out that white people are much less worried about climate change and supportive of taking action than black and brown people are. So you're a sort of average environmentalist, as in someone who really cares about the environment and is really supportive of taking, you know, pretty aggressive action to address this existential threat is a black or brown person, not an upper class white person. And so that kind of white privileging within the ranks of the movement is actually cutting off the leadership's connection to the people who are the natural powerful base. And then the sort of colorblindness in the field, which I will say is definitely changing a lot, just even in the past four years. But the sort of historical colorblindness in the field is made it so that there isn't even a sophisticated analysis about why is it that the faction in the world that is the most opposed to taking climate action is one that is dominated by white men? What What is the connection between the climate change denialist story and the white male story. You know, like, shouldn't we be asking that question when so much is at stake? You know, and in, and in The Some of Us, I did ask that question. And I talked to sociologists who were able to sort of make sense of it for me because without asking those questions, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense when climate change is already costing us $240 billion a year as a conservative estimate, right? These claims of conservatives or even moderate, mostly white people saying, it's going to cost the economy too much for us to switch to wind. Like what? You know, like what? You know, what are we really talking about here? That's yeah. um, again, kind of like the failure of the economic data. And so it felt like I really needed to engage with the deeper story that was compelling people and shaping worldview and shaping resistance and alliance and, and proclivities because it wasn't enough to just say that the racial economic divides cost the economy $16 trillion over the last 20 years. That's a big number. That's much bigger than any of the numbers we're often talking about. And yet it, it sort of doesn't matter, right? This is not actually an economic policy conversation. In some ways, I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of asking for help here <laughs> because, you know, I... I grew up in the South, in the Deep South, and I just moved back last mm. year. And so, mm. you know, I talked to a lot of what we would typically think of as, you know, white, working, middle class people. And and it's kind of depressing because we're losing, we're losing the messaging game. Mm -hmm. And I say we with some hesitation there. I think you and I share political ambitions, but some of this is not the fault of, of you know, progressive or liberals or, you know, there are a subset of people who either really are racist or just for whatever reason are not gettable. Mm -hmm. But there's another subset of people who aren't racist, who are persuadable. And we're losing them because the side that you and I are on is often being 
defined by its worst manifestations, or maybe worse is the wrong word, most counterproductive. The, the, the voices that get salience are, is a little bit distorted and Twitter is not real life and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But you know, your book makes an incredibly important and correct argument that racism hurts all of us. And you know, what I hear over and over again in some of these frustrating conversations with people that I engage with is a lot of resentment over you know, the notion that they're privileged or, or tools of white supremacy or whatever, even if that's true, I, mean, I guess, again, my only point here is it's just not, it's not getting them to see the light. It's not, it's not changing any minds. And I know you encounter, or I assume you encountered a lot of this kind of resistance as you were working on this book. And, and I, I'm curious how you, you dealt with it, how you deal with it. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny because the white share of the vote to the right wing has been pretty consistent, really, ever since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. So this this new blaming white allegiance to the Republican Party on, you know, the handful of year-old resurgence in the national conversation uh, about issues of racial justice feels a little hollow to me, right? Because, like, yeah. you know, it's not like the majority of white people were Democrats until the last five years or until Ferguson or, you know what I mean? Like, it's made the pot shots easier. It's made the dog whistles into bullhorns. It's made it easier for Fox News and the right-wing radio and the Sinclairs and everything else to have fodder, you know, for every hourly broadcast, to, to harp on this sort of racial grievance. But, you know, looking at the data as I had to for the book, you know, it's, it's been pretty consistent, right? The majority of, of white moderates and conservatives say that Black people take more from society than we give. I, I, that's not necessarily about Dr. Seuss books, you know? I mean, like, it just, that's, that's deeper. That's older, right? Yeah, that's a yeah. deeper, older projection that feels very necessary to justify the racial hierarchy. Ultimately, I think that thinking of denigrating black and brown people in your mind, the kinder, gentler version of it is the socially liberal, fiscally conservative part that thinks that poverty is is about culture and effort and not about, you know, wages and, and benefits. And then the harsher part of it is a lot more prideful in the resentment and owning the libs and all that. But that that spectrum has existed for a long time now in our politics. So I I think it's easier in some ways for progressives to think about what we have the power to change, which is again, the the discourse that's coming from the kind of elite, very online, mostly white progressives. But I don't think it's the real issue. I don't think it is either. And I was actually having a conversation with someone I know and love just a few days ago while I was wrapping up your book. And, you know, this is someone who is not a racist, but is someone who has, I think, absorbed that zero of some paradigm that you talk about, right? So we were talking about the minimum wage and, and, and he was telling me how relieved he was to hear that it got shut down, that the minimum wage mm. wasn't going to be bumped up to $15. And this is someone who has you know, a good job, a, a salary job, and people getting a minimum wage increase would not harm him in any discernible way at all. And yet when I ask, well, why does that make you happy? And it's not going to change your life one way or the other, but it will help significantly other people. And the response was just, well, hey, you know, if people who are flipping burgers, who, uh, you know, people who who don't have enough ambition to do more than that are going to get a raise and I'm busting my ass and, and I'm not going to get anything. Well, where's the fairness in that? Where's the justice in that? And, you know, look, there are a lot of good arguments about why that's the wrong way to see it. But when I bump up against that, it feels like a conversation stopper. It feels like I'm bumping up against a story, against you know, metaphysics. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to do. I, it, it, feels, it feels very deflating. And, and your, your book is a long and good answer to that. But I, you know, I still struggle in my own life to combat that. And dealing with that is one of the impetuses for, for this book. And um, I, I imagine this is the kind of thing you, you bump up against in, in your life, too, quite a bit. That burger flipper idea, that idea that if if somebody who I see today as being less than me has the same as me or even a little less misery in their life, 
then that somehow is a reflection of my own worth, is so the programming of our racial capitalism. It is so the programming of our brutal racial and economic hierarchy that made the understanding of white Americans' own status, even as inconsistent and fluid as it might have been in terms of white ethnic immigrants becoming white, in terms of, you know, the sort of economic vicissitudes of American life. There was always one thing that you weren't, which is the people at the bottom. And so you have to really acknowledge, I think we do, that one of the things that our economy and our history and our general sense of a hierarchy of human value, which is what your friend was was expressing, right? That person is less than me, so they shouldn't get what I get. And that is just not the way most people think in countries with more social solidarity, right? They don't think there's like an other and you, there's something about your character that makes you so different. It's this illusion that race provides that you're of a different kind of human, that under the same circumstances, you would do something different and better. And the flip side is, and this is what I try to paint in the book, there's a different way of functioning in which we recognize our common humanity and we have the kinds of universal benefits and supports that we saw signs of in the New Deal era when the beneficiaries were overwhelmingly and in many instances exclusively designed to be white, where you just assume that we kind of all are pretty much the same folks, right? We all want the same things. We all respond to you know, hunger the same way. We all, generally speaking, work hard, try to provide for our families, that there's not some like racialized other that is just so bad of character that they deserve poverty. And what's crazy about it is that once you have that ladder, that scaffolding of human hierarchy, yes, Black people are at the bottom in that, you know, imagined human hierarchy, But then there's the, well, then there are those white poor people who are, you know, kind of just like basically too close to black. And then sort of everyone who struggles, right? Everyone making under $15 an hour in your friend's estimation is of some lesser character. And that's just so damning. That's so damaging to our society. We're going to take another short break, but when we come back, I want to talk to Heather McGee about the flip side of this American othering, where white people see black people as apart, as less than. But what happens when we try to de-emphasize race, like when Barack Obama reminded us that we're all Americans? That's after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. in a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And, and you write about this in the book, right? I mean, you, you take someone like Barack Obama who went out of his way to de-emphasize race and appeal to the best of us. You know, we're not red America or, or blue America. We're the United States of America. And yet, what did he get? 
he got a tea party that used the language of fiscal responsibility to basically organize white resentment and undermine his presidency. So there's that. And, I, you know, I, I, does that perhaps speak to the limits of progressive nationalism? I mean, what do you draw from that? I think it goes to the limits of colorblind triumphalism, of our ability to have a conversation about this country with an ecosystem. I think Barack Obama understands race and always has. But I think that the Democratic Party leadership and the mostly white people around them and, you know, his campaign and making strategy, you know, were so close to somebody who gave lie to all of it. In my experience, from having conversations with people who were close to President Obama and working in the White House, they really didn't realize the extent of racism in our politics and our policymaking. They just didn't get it. And um, they hadn't done the, done the work um, to really understand just how central race and racism was and what, what the tool looked like and how it's deployed. But they were also white. And so they actually had a gut-level caution around talking about race explicitly. But I think there was the assumption that by not talking about it explicitly, they could avoid the minds. And that was wrong. And that's I think, was the big insight that we gleaned from the Race Class Narrative Project was, hey, there's a way, and in fact an imperative, to engage on racism that isn't feeding into the reactionary right-wing message, but in fact gives white listeners and some listeners of color who have those dog whistle stereotypes in their minds, right? We're all (laughs) in this country, you know, gives them a a way to see them for what they are, which is ploys. I guess my biggest worry is that we get locked in this dialectic of fear and resentment of of action and, and reaction, and it's just this, you know, awful self-fulfilling hellscape, but you're a hopeful person and (laughs) this is a hopeful book. So, you know, tell me how, how does the left win? What story must it tell? I think we have to tell a certain story and the story has to be heard through action. So, you know, I, I always need to make that point because I think oftentimes because of the economics of democratic activism, there's so much emphasis on getting the right message. It's important, necessary, not sufficient. I think we need to include in our worldview the story of the drained public pool, a way of understanding that this country had hit on the formula for creating middle-class security for working-class people. And walked away from it because of racism. And that the nostalgia of the Trump message for Make America Great Again has a truth in it that the economic data and our own memories as Americans bears out was that it did used to be better and easier economic life in America. But the people who destroyed that weren't black and brown people and women who wanted a seat at the table. It was the white elites who used racial and gender fear and distrust to convince the majority of white voters to turn their back on that formula. So I think that is really important. And then we've been in an organizing resurgence for the past four years that needs to continue. We need to double down because ordinary people have experienced a rebirth of civic life, whether it's after their clopening shift because they're doing it for their own survival if they're making minimum wage, or it's because their moral sense of self has been so violated by America's inequalities and wrongs and by Trumpism that they've just decided that a part of being an American and a human being right now is to organize, is to to be a citizen. And that is, is the space that has always changed lives and changed history. And we are in that space right now. And that's what's exciting and hopeful to me. This idea that I talk about in The Sum of Us, about the solidarity dividends that we can unlock, but only through cross-racial organizing. 
I saw signs of it across my journey to write the book, from Maine to California. I see it right now in the potential for organizing in Alabama at the Amazon warehouse. There are ways in which organizing across lines of race is the most powerful thing we can do. And it gives me hope because people who are actually doing that become inoculated from the Fox News zero-sum message through their lived experience of shared struggle with people of different races. I really love the title of your book, The Sum of Us, because it reminds me of an experience I had when I was in graduate school and a professor had to step away from his course and they asked me to step in and teach it for him. And he was a pacifist and it was a course on nonviolent resistance. And that experience really convinced me that the foundation of political power is and always is consent. And that if enough people put their bodies on the line and say, no, no, no mm. regime, no, no regime story can stand for very long. And your book gestures towards this fact that solidarity is the answer that the sum of us can achieve so much more than some of us. And it seems like this book made you more optimistic, not less. And mm -hmm. I, I'll take it. <laughs> I guess I'll take it, even though I, I still, you know, if I'm being honest, feel a little pessimistic about the potential. It's not going to be easy, but I'm, maybe it's because I'm sitting here as the descendant of enslaved people. I do believe that we have more tools to fight this old force than we ever had. And I think the the economic benefit of the racial bargain is withering away. I think the other side's agenda is bankrupt and this is all they have. And I think that there's a yearning, a human yearning to connect and to not feel so isolated and at war that is within all of us. And that is a powerful force for good. Heather McGee, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to Vox Conversations. This week's episode was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Jostowska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Theme music's by Breakmaster Cylinder. Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts and the executive producer of Vox Conversations. We would love to know what you think of the show. As always, send us an email, voxconversations at vox.com. Or if you want to take the easier path, rate and review the show show wherever you listen. Thanks so much.